Well, we're in the middle of the book of Acts. Well, not the middle. We're at the beginning of the book of Acts. And last week, we saw that Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he finally had come to the end of the sermon. And in the preaching of the apostle cut his Jewish audience to the heart. So much so that they asked, what shall we do? And we saw there that Peter told them, this is what a true response to the gospel looks like. Right? Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They did just that. And Luke records that about 3,000 souls in and around Jerusalem then were added to the original band of disciples, which was about 120. So today, we're looking at the next passage, a very well-known text from Acts chapter 2. And what we have this morning is a portrait of the community formed by the apostolic preaching. Right? The community of the repentant, of the baptized, the community of the forgiven, the community created by the Spirit. So this is the earliest portrait we have of the apostolic church, right? It's a picture of the promised restoration of Israel, promised in the prophets at its inception. So this is the community of the last days, the people of the new creation. I'm going to look at the text under four headings. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The apostles, the fellowship, the worship, and the adding. So, First, then, the apostles. This was, we find right away, a devoted community. There's a list of stuff they're devoted to. And the word for devoted here is in verse 42. It means occupied with, persistent in, holding fast to, continuing in. And the very first thing that they were devoted to was the apostles' teaching. Not just Peter's teaching, or Peter and John's, who've been prominent to this point, but the whole college of the twelve, the apostles' plural. The apostolic college is teaching them. And here again, we see for probably the fifth or sixth time already, the foundational, unrepeatable, Decisive role of the apostles. Think about this. They, not the priests or scribes, not the elders, not the Sanhedrin, but the apostles, they are the direct, living, authorized teaching authorities in this community. They are on the level of the law and the prophets. And even Moses' teaching and the word of the prophets are to be understood through the inspired interpretation of these hand-chosen witnesses by the Lord Jesus, the apostles. Now, this is a community, think about this, this is a community which has just experienced Pentecost. Right, this supernatural phenomenon of tongues of fire from heaven. And then the gift of the Spirit in baptism as well. 
And this powerful spiritual experience does not lead to some form of mysticism. It doesn't lead to some kind of anti-intellectual despising of the life of the mind. Which, you might guess, it could, (laughs) given the phenomenon that they had just experienced. But it doesn't. It doesn't lead to, you know, I've got the spirit, who needs doctrine? I just had the spirit fall from heaven, in flaming tongues rest upon me. But doctrine, the apostles' teaching is, Calvin says, for example, it is the soul of the church. Right? Doctrine is the soul of the church. And so right, like right here at the fountainhead, at the origin of the Christian movement in the world, you have word and spirit together. The spirit falls from heaven. They were devoted to the apostolic teaching. Word and spirit together, inseparable. Light and heat. Light and heat. Living experience, full-orbed truth. It turns out, right, one does not have to choose between a life in the spirit and a robust engagement with high theology. The options are not charismatic Christianity or dead orthodoxy. Take your pick. Those are not the options, right? The early church, the earliest church, but not just the earliest church, the church of the first couple of centuries, the church of the martyrs, the best of the medieval church, and certainly large swaths of the Reformation, held word and spirit together. They didn't pit them against each other because the spirit is the spirit of truth. And he is sent forth from the God of truth. So let me say something in public. I mean, that's what I am doing up here. Even to the world, it's going to be recorded. Something that the church sometimes doesn't seem to want to say. Christianity is an intellectually demanding religion. It's an intellectually demanding religion. It is easy to mangle it. It is easy to get it half right. Now, this does not mean that one has to be an intellectual or have a certain IQ for salvation. Of course not. The basics are quite simple. And they can, the church has always held, they can be grasped By ordinary people using ordinary means. Word, sacrament, prayer. Thanks be to God for that. But even the basics are inexhaustible. The basics are not the whole faith. They're not the full counsel of God. And we are not minimalists walking around thinking, what's the minimal amount of stuff I have to deal with to get into heaven? We are maximalists. Christianity is simple enough for a child to grasp it. This is part of its wonder. And it is also too profound for the most luminous minds who've ever lived to even begin to exhaust it. Because it opens up into the realm of the infinite, the incomprehensible light of the triune God. 
and even understanding at a modest level the Trinity is challenging. The great Dutch theologian Herman Boving, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, said, mystery is the vital nerve of Christian theology, meaning you're always surrounded by mystery. It's not like we have human reason, human reason, human logic, human reason. Oh, now it's getting hard. I guess that part's mystery. The whole thing is mystery from the beginning. And you can see that most clearly in the wildest doctrine of God ever conceived, the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity. So even at a modest level to deal with that, or to deal with the person and natures of Christ, which might be even harder than the Trinity, is a daunting thing. It's elusive, but it's a glorious task, but it's thick with mystery and wonder. So the God of Christianity, it turns out, gives us a fat book, like a really fat book. You might think if you listen to some Christians that he gave us an index card. But you get, instead you get this fat collection of 66 books to master, written in multiple languages across centuries and in different cultures. This little mini library. Turns out this library sits in and generates a sea of other literature, which you're also going to have to engage if you want to understand the mini library. So the Christian faith is then a word-centered religion. It creates literate readers and thinkers and speakers wherever it has gone. People of the book. Because the God of the Bible creates the world, and he acts in the world, and he saves the world by speaking, by wording. The Son of God who came to save us in Jesus Christ is the word, the logos, the speech, the language, the deep rationality of the Father. And this word leaves us a word, the mini library of Scripture And that means we have a cognitively rich religion. So we have then here in our text at the outset, a community devoted to that word. The thing about devotion evokes for me Kierkegaard who said, purity of heart is to will one thing. They're devoted to the apostolic word. They're not scattered in a dozen directions trying to squeeze some Bible in. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is a learning, listening community. And verse 41 says they had received the word. Right? James uses similar language where he says the word is implanted in us. And this receptivity is the key to learning and to growth and to avoiding stagnation. An openness then, or in James's words, a meekness under the apostolic word. A holy curiosity. 
a holy curiosity, an acute sense of our own ignorance and need. This is the posture of disciples from the beginning, of learners. And it's basic to being a human being, really. It's not unnatural. Aristotle said, you know, our chief desire is to know. Human beings desire to know. We like to know stuff. And then we figure that stuff out. We like to know the cause of that stuff. We trace causes back. We have a passion to know. So this community, then, is a community where public instruction is at the center of its identity. Right? Preaching is an identity-forming event. It shapes the community in a decisive way. We can lose sight of a lot of this in an age where everybody's got their own Bible. So we could ask this question then. What would they be teaching? There is no New Testament at this time. Well, obviously then, they'd be teaching the the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. That's what they would know. That's what they would teach. And they would be teaching what they learned from Jesus orally. Right? The Sermon on the Mount. All of his ethical teaching, everything he taught. So what we have here then is the Great Commission in action. Right? Where Jesus told them, make disciples of all the nations. Right? Israel being the first nation here. Baptizing them. Teaching them. All that I've commanded you. So it's a robust agenda. In short, they'd be teaching the law. They'd be teaching the the prophets. They'd be teaching those things as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we get little glimpses of this in the book of Acts. We get edited subsets. And this teaching, this apostolic teaching is enshrined and it comes to us now in the form of the New Testament scriptures to which we are to be devoted. So, it's a devoted community to the word. But notice also, the apostles ministered not merely in word, but also in deed. Verse 43, And awe, the word is fear, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Peter had said this would happen, right? He opened the sermon by citing from the prophet Joel to the effect that there would be in the last days signs in the heavens and signs on the earth. These signs and wonders done through the apostles, right? Things like healings, exorcisms, they do a number of things. They do a number of things. It's important to get these right. I think we could say they do three things. There may be others, but three are important. First, they confirm the unique authority of the apostles. Right? They are the chosen witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. A lot of mischief in the book of Acts comes from people who are not apostles, namely us, wanting to be apostles. A lot of mischief in Acts interpretation happens when that happens. Right? Paul, for example, he was not one of the twelve, but he was still an apostle. And he had to remind the Corinthians. He said to them, the signs of a true apostle, signs and wonders and mighty works were done in your midst. Right? Apostles do miracles. Right? And in the book of Acts, by the way, nobody but apostles 
and two other guys, Stephen and Philip, closely associated with the apostles, nobody but them do miracles. And in fact, the miracles fade toward the end of the book and toward the end of the New Testament canon as the apostles move off the scene. So the miracles confirm the role of the apostles. Secondly, they confirm the truth of the gospel. And thirdly, like the miracles of Jesus, they point to the coming kingdom in its fullness. Right? They are done in the last days before the great and magnificent day. And they point to. They point to the coming resurrection. They point to the new creation where all will be well. Where death and the powers will be destroyed. Where sickness and disease will be no more. That's why the blind man is healed in Acts chapter 3, which Lord willing we'll get to soon. And this is why awe and fear came upon every soul. The apostles are not only preaching and teaching, but they're doing these signs. And so there is in the community here, if you read the book of Acts, this palpable sense of the holiness of God. That they have entered some kind of unique holy realm flooded with the fire of the Spirit sent from heaven. So that's the apostles. Secondly, secondly, the community was devoted to fellowship. You know, fellowship is a wonderful thing, but it is a word that can be easily cheapened. Many of you probably know, it's the Greek word koinonia, which means common. That's really the root meaning of it, common, or by extension to hold or to share things in common. It's intrinsic to the idea of fellowship. So, for example, the the New Testament is written in a style of Greek known as Koine Greek, right? It's taken from this word because it was the Greek of the common people. So, fellowship has to do with holding things in common. And, of course, the chief thing we share in common is communion with the triune God and thus with one another. Right? When John writes his first epistle, he says, we're proclaiming the gospel so you can have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. But you'll notice in the text, they also shared food. They had meals in common. Fellowship meant hospitality. It meant eating together. Look at verse 46. It says, they broke bread in their homes. These are ordinary meals. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So you have, a, you have a, a somewhat mysterious combination here of holy fear and great gladness and joy in this community. A kind of sacred compound of fear and joy. But there is, in the word koinonia, in addition to what we said, there's also these strong overtones of material support. Look at verse 44. It's one of those verses I like to say you won't find this on anybody's refrigerator. All who believed were together and had all things in common. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. Now I know what we tend to think when we hear stuff like this in our circles. Our first instinct is something like this, usually, perhaps. But it was voluntary. 
It was not mandated by the state. Not socialism, not some sort of proto-communism. I'm just going to say two words about that, just so it's on the record, right? All true. (laughs) All true. It's voluntary. It's not mandated. It's not some form of proto-communism. Sure. However, we should not let ourselves off the hook too easily here. They voluntarily held all things in common. It's amazing how we can miss that point in our defense of the free market. They were, the text goes on to say, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here's what our first instinct should be when we hear this. It should be the coming of the Spirit has created a radical and voluntary spirit of generosity to distribute wealth from rich Christians to their needy brothers and sisters. That's remarkable. That, we should think, is what Pentecost induces the church to freely do. That is the economic implications of repentance and baptism. It's an astonishing thing that's in front of you in this text. And of course, this kind of lifestyle is rooted in Jesus' own example and teaching. It's often said, well, this must be induced because of Pentecost and there were pilgrims from all over the world. I'll address that in a minute. Um, But think about this. Where does this come from? It comes from the one who said, no servant can serve two masters. For he will be devoted. There's our word, by the way. He will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus had warned in the parable of the rich fool, right, against hoarding and continually building these bigger barns. We heard in the gospel lesson, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old, right? Provide yourself a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart. So this kind of giving that we see in the apostolic church, it's a way of profaning. It's a way of desacralizing what Jesus elsewhere calls unrighteous mammon. Right? You, will, you will sometimes hear people say, well, wealth is neutral. You can use it for good or you can use it for evil. Jesus doesn't think so. He thinks wealth is a power. You can either serve God or you can serve mammon. When he addresses mammon, you know what adjective he puts in front of it? Not neutral, but unrighteous. So let's look closely at what is happening here in this apostolic community. The text tells us they were selling their possessions and their belongings. There's two words used here. And they, possessions and belongings. The underlying words indicate this includes land, extra property one may have had, and things, goods. So real estate and personal goods. They were voluntarily divesting themselves of substantial assets. Now remember, this is part of what fellowship means. Koinonia. 
Again, to be clear, there is no repudiation of private property here. They met, this very passage tells us, in their homes. So they kept their own homes. They maintained their own homes. But those who had means were selling other assets. And then the text says they were distributing the proceeds to all. Some of you know what's going to happen in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira want to violate the the sacred holiness of this arrangement. The verbs indicate here this is a regular, repetitive process. They did this repetitively, repeatedly in the Jerusalem church. But it was stimulated. It was what we call occasional, meaning it was triggered by events. Namely, the text says, as any had needs. Right? That's the occasion. As the needs arose, the church distributed wealth to its needy members. So again, no, it's not communism. It's not mandated. But it's still repugnant to our greedy, fallen natures. What drove it, though, is the question, if not a mandate. And this is the provocative thing about the text, I think, which is often missed. What drove it was the gift of the Spirit. The Pentecostal gift of the Spirit. And it manifests itself in this concrete expression of concern. This is just love made tangible. And by the way, this principle that's going on here, it subsists in the church well beyond Pentecost, right? Over a decade after this, Paul will go all over the world to the Greek Gentile churches asking them to give sacrificially so he could take an enormous offering back to the same impoverished Judean believers in Jerusalem. For one reason or another, the believers in and around Jerusalem were poor. They were poor here, and they were poor later. And later, the apostles dealt with it in a different way. They called upon the whole global church to support them. So this is just the fruit of recognizing believers as family. This is how you treat your family. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So this is what koinonia, it's what holding things in common Fellowship produced by the Spirit. This is what it looked like. The 5th century bishop, John Chrysostom, describes it this way. He says this. This was an angelic commonwealth. Not to call anything of theirs their own. Notice, that's the exact right paradox here. Not to call anything of theirs, it's still yours, your own. I don't call anything that's mine, my own. Usually, there's people in the church to get only one half of that right. (laughs) But Chrysostom says they didn't call anything that was theirs, their own. Right? There's a long tradition in Christian economic thought back through the Middle Ages called the universal destination of goods. Meaning, when God originally created the world for Adam, right, he was going to take dominion over the whole world, right, and, and and bring forth its wealth and its, its resources and the like. And that was for everybody before the fall, right? It wasn't, we're, we're not supposed to have a situation of scarcity where you have neighborhoods you can't walk in and you have you know, a couple percentage of the people controlling 50% of the wealth. This is all abnormal. All the goods of God's good creation in the New Jerusalem are going to be shared in some fundamental way by everyone. 
You're not going to be like, gee, I'd like to get into that better New Jerusalem neighborhood over there. There is a universal destination of goods. And so, so we do have private property, but we don't call the stuff that's ours our own. So Chrysostom, this was an angelic commonwealth, not to call anything of theirs their own. The poor man knew no shame, the rich no haughtiness. It's also a type, right? Also a picture in this community of what is to be. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, koinonia, sharing in common. And the third thing they were devoted to was worship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the breaking of bread here may refer to a common meal, but very early the Eucharist was also celebrated at the same meal. So we can't be definitive, but this probably includes a reference to the supper. In addition, they were devoted to the, note the article, the, they were devoted to the prayers, plural. So what do we have in the text so far? You have word, sacrament, fellowship, prayer. Just what we call in our tradition the ordinary means of grace, right? This is just the ordinary way God builds his community. So these would be set prayers, such as Judaism had at the time. They could include prayers and petitions like the Lord's Prayer. And they would have made room, as we see later in Acts, for informal prayers as well. So common meals and probably the Lord's Supper, prayers, formal and informal, And then it says they attended the temple regularly together. Now, it's clear in this section of the book of Acts that they're attending the temple primarily for the apostolic proclamation in the temple precincts of Jesus Christ. If you look through the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see this. Uh, And especially the rest of the New Testament. The temple is being fulfilled in what the temple pointed to, namely the temple that you are, the end-time temple of the church in the Spirit. That's why Jesus said this temple will be destroyed in 70 A.D. So what's happening in Acts, again, we may take all of this for granted, but you have the risen Jesus himself saying, I am the locus of worship, right? And the church, my body, is the promised coming eternal temple foreseen by the prophets. It's very radical stuff, right? It'll get you killed by the religious authorities. Okay. So in verse 47, it summarizes, it says, they were praising God. It was a life of worship, of presenting themselves to God, praising God and having favor with all the people. The common people flocked to the early church. Who, who did they not have favor with? The religious authorities, they had no favor with them. They had favor with all the people. Finally, the adding. Last point here, verse 41, says that those who received Peter's preached word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And in verse 47, it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the Lord is adding. And they were, notice these people are added Converts, right? They're added to an existing community, the church, the Jewish remnant and root, the continuation and the renewal of the Israel of God. There's no individual Christian life apart from the community. Right? There's an ancient saying about 
extra ecclesium, nullus salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. And it was formulated by Cyprian, I think, in the third century, but it's in our Reformed confessions. We add the word ordinarily. So as we say, outside the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Salvation means addition to a people. Otherwise, it's fraudulent. So there's two things being used by God to save people here, right? First, the spirit-inspired proclamation of the apostles, right, and their signs. But secondly, it's clear that God's working through this embodied community. These kinds of communities are infectious, Right? They changed the world. This is a community of receptive devotion to the apostolic teaching, devotion to one another in fellowship that is both hospitable and costly, right? devotion to worship and prayer. All of this being done here in an environment of holy fear and glad and generous hearts. And as I said, clearly this was infectious. And it should be said here, we'll see this later, but it should be said, this community is going to have plenty of problems, right? I mean, there will, there will be dissension, there will be all sorts of things that happen, uh, but this is the root of it, right? So the people saw this community, and they looked with favor on this community because of their love for God and their love for neighbor. Right? Jesus had said this. He said, if we are one with one another, united then in a holy bond of fellowship, the world would know the Father sent the Son. Right? The world would know the Father sent the Son if the church had this sort of unity. If we loved one another, all men would know you are my disciples. So this is, for all of its flawed and broken people, this is the beautiful community to which you have been added into which you've been baptized. It's the community of the gospel. This is what the Spirit and the Word do when they come together in power. This is what we're seeking. So we want the same Word and Spirit which created this community, the Word and Spirit by which you've been saved and added to this assembly. May that same Word and Spirit kindle in us, kindle in us, right? Weak and frail sinners... Renewal in this concrete embodied devotion to God and this luminous witness to neighbor, right? For the glory of the ascended Christ, for the good of our brothers and sisters in the body, and for the sake of the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Amen.